Now, how many of you have called? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you have actually seen the movie? Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, when I finished watching this movie, here's what hit me. This happened when my parents were my kid's age. In other words, in, in essence, in, in this, many of your generation, in your lifetime. Now, as I watched this movie, it stirred deep inside of me. And as I, as I processed that, as I was getting ready for this, and I thought about why did it stir in me? Why does that story stir in so many people? And not only that, stories like that. And here's what I believe with all my heart. Genesis chapter 1 tells us why that story stirs in us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 says that every single one of you in this room, whether you're a man or you're a woman, is created in the image of God. Men and women are created in the image of God, fully equal before God, fully bearing his image, image bearers. Now, as you think about that and process that, and, and you step into, well, what does that really mean? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 tells us what it means to be created in the image of God. It says, be fruitful and increase in number. One of the first things it means to be created in the image of God is we have the capacity and the desire and the ability to multiply. That's why I would just say for those of you in this room that can't have, that, that want to have children and can't, it is so deeply painful because it works against the way you were wired it works against, it means something's not quite right here in this world. Now, more than that, after be fruitful and increase in number, the second thing that it says, be fruitful and increase in number, and I want you to rule and to reign in this earth. So to be created in the image of God, whether you are five, you are 55, or you're 105, you have the capacity to rule. You have the capacity for autonomy, for freedom, God never designed for this to be exerted against other humans. It says, rule and to reign this earth. Subdue it. So when we watch stories where one human is ruling and subjecting another human, it stirs inside of us because it pushes against the very way you were created, whether you're a man or you're a woman. We deeply value freedom. I'm going to broaden this morning's message a little wider than just women, but I'd say all of us in this room value freedom. I value it. It's one of our chief American Western values, freedom. But as I think about freedom and I think about stories I got and they stir us and I process it, I look inside of myself and I ask the question, am I free? And what I've learned is, let me share a verse with you, 2 Peter chapter 2, the second half of the verse 19, it says, for you are slaves to whatever controls you. So when I look at myself and I say, well, now wait a minute, I value freedom, but I'm not very free. For example, <laughs> I may be coming down 283 away from Harrisburg towards Lancaster. I hit the 30 exchange there. And as soon as I get within that area, I mean, I'm within, mm, give it two miles of that area. And my mind shifts into, this is the exit. Good life is at this exit. No lie, this is serious. I mean, I start my, man, I could get off here if I could hit Good Life, my favorite ice cream in all of Lancaster County. You know, I could hit this, I could still get back on in time and, and, I'm, and I fight it and I fight it and it, it's seeking to control me. I'll push past the exit and think, I made it. Oh, Sweet Frog is at this exit. The worst, the worst is 272 over in Ephrata. You hit Rita's, and then you hit Dairy Queen, and then you hit Yogurt Works, and then you hit McDonald's. If you missed them all, well, I'll grab a McDonald's ice cream cone for a dollar, right? I mean, it's like bang, 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 bang. And it's, till I get through there, I'm sweating. I'm like, oh my goodness, I made it. Now, 
We laugh at that, but the reality is all of us have things in our life that we can't control. Whether it's what we do with our eyes, what we do with our hands, what we do with our mouth, habits and hang-ups that got a hold of us. And as I look inside of us, I see it's interesting. We value freedom so much, but boy, how many of us are trapped and not very free? In fact, I'll push a little deeper as I look inside of myself a quote that always has meant a lot to me. The first time I read it a few years ago, and uh, it's, it's given by a guy by the name of Steve Brown. He, many of you may know him. He's, he speaks on a local radio station here. His program, I believe, is still on here in this area. But, but he says this, when you get right down to it, most people are not as interested in freedom as they are in security. Let me say it again. Most people are not as interested in freedom as they are in security. Given the clear option, he goes on to say, given the clear option between freedom with its attendant responsibility and problems and dictatorship with its attendant structure and limits, most people pick dictatorship every time. And here's why he says that is. This is the rest of his quote. We want to be secure and safe, not free and responsible. So we love freedom. We champion it. We were wired for it. God wired it into you to rule and to reign, to be free, to be autonomous. Yet so few of us find ourselves to really be free, either because of the things that push in and seek to control or because of our own insecurities and our ability to say, man, I'd rather be safe and secure, not free and responsible. Now, you say, what does this have to do with mothering, Adam? <laughs> right? What does this have to do with friending? Well, open with me to 1 John chapter 4. Like I said, I'm going to take us a little broader than mothering. I want to really hit this issue of friending and relationships and kind of kick this around. 1 John chapter 4. It's page 1033 in the Bibles there in the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of them. I'd even say if you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. Now, last week, as you're turning there, last week we kicked this principle around with friendly. Whatever it is you want to receive, give it away. So it's kind of the golden rule reality that Jesus talks about. Do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. What is it that you want? Give it away. And we really pushed into this, and we said, well, really, what stands behind the golden rule, what Jesus is really talking about is love your enemies. Because oftentimes, those who are closest to us have the greatest opportunity to become our enemy because they're the ones that have the most opportunity, the greatest opportunity to hurt us. So it says, love them, forgive them, don't judge Offer grace, offer forgiveness, and what you give away is what you return, have given to you in return. And so we talked about that last week, and as we kind of led that down the road, we ultimately came to the point, well, okay, you can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away what you don't have. So we talked about, well, how do we we get this thing inside of us that we can give it away? And that's what we're going to kick around this morning. Jesus says it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. It says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man, he can bring us together. He can bring God and us together, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase what? Say, it, say the word, purchase freedom. Jesus came to bring back to us what we lost as, as, as sin entered our world. I want to come back and I want to give them the freedom that they had from the start. He came, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. God looks at every one of you and says, I don't want any of you to perish. I don't want any of you to spend eternity apart from me. I've had this person, Jesus, this fully God, fully man, my son, come into the world to offer you freedom. Now... <laughs> The beauty of this is if you're going to friend well, if you're going to mother well, if you're going to parent well, it is important that you live free and you love free. 
Freedom is crucial to any relationship. Exercising dominion and rule over your children, over your husband, over your wife, over people in general does not work. We've got to learn to receive this freedom and give it away. And to do that, what we're going to see in 1 John chapter 4 is this principle of needing to stop and pause long enough to feel and absorb love. Now, I'm going to leave love general, though I did put in parentheses. You say, what do you mean by feel and absorb love? That's kind of touchy-feely, Adam. I mean in general, all love. Because I believe you're going to see in 1 John chapter 4, by you receiving love from others, you might actually be receiving God's love. And it might actually take you to a place of really experiencing God's love is what you'll see unpack here in 1 John chapter 4. Look with me at verse 7. It says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. (laughs) We could preach all morning on those verses right there. I want to pull one thought out of this, though. God defines love for us. I love this, love this, this is love. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Let me just say it this way. My love for God does not define my relationship with him. Have you ever been asked this question? <laughs> I just asked this recently to a group, and I got done. I thought, I shouldn't have asked that question. I'm not, who can answer that question? This is a tough question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how are you doing in your relationship with God? How's your spiritual life? Put it that way. How would you answer that? And I find that when I answer that question, what I have a tendency to do is I start to tick down, okay, let's see, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I should have done this, I should have been there, man, I knew better there. And You know what I'm doing? I'm measuring my relationship with him based on whose love? My love. And God says, no, 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 no. I define this relationship. I define this love. My my relationship with him is ultimately defined by his relationship with me and his love for me. It's where it starts. It says in a scripture, it says right there, when we are enemies, Jesus entered and loved us. When we were far from God, he stepped in towards us. He defines love. I want to borrow a loose definition from a theologian named Scott McKnight, loosely his. I was at a conference of his this past fall, and, and this is roughly what he shared. He says, this is the definition of love, a rugged commitment to be present with and for another person, to be present with them and for them. God, it says God is love. God defines love. So you stop and think about it. Well, what is love then? Well, I believe when you really look at God, God is committed to you. God is invested in you. He's more invested in you than you are in yourself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He is deeply invested in you. He's present with you. Think of the Christmas story. Emmanuel, which means God, some of you know, God what? With us. He's present in our world. He's present in our suffering. He's here with us. And it's to be for another person. You see it right there in 1 John. He's, he sang, he sac- sacrifices. He stepped towards. He, he's walking towards you. Now, here's why I put this definition up. If you were to pull out your smartphones right now and Google definition of love, almost all Western dictionaries put as your number one definition, whether it's Oxford or Webster's or dictionary.com, you pull any of them up, 
the number one definition of love has something to do with affection, not commitment. Our Western world defines love by some kind of feeling. God doesn't define it that way. Now, affection is part of it, and it will come with it. And if it's not there, I'd say it's not really love. So it is a key component, but it is not the primary definition of love. The primary definition of love, when you look at God, he is committed to you, he's present with you, he's for you. That's love. God steps in and says, that's what I am, that's who I am, I define that. Now look with me at verses 11 and 12. Now 11 and 12, in my opinion... These verses get kind of glossed over for all that's around them because what's around them is so rich. And so people get all wrapped up with God is love, God defines love. They get wrapped up with these commands to love one another. They get wrapped up with fear and love, verses 18 and 19, which are very, this is a popular section of scripture. And verses 11 and 12 oftentimes just kind of get glossed over. And in my opinion, verses 11 and 12, a true understanding of verses 11 and 12 help you live out and apply everything you read around them. Verse 11, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. There is the kind of the command. So you, you've received from God, you should be giving from what you received. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And pause here. Now, I want to pick out one piece of the, I'm not going to hit all of this verse, but I want to really focus in on one, one piece that has meant the world to me. And I hope to use it to help you embrace freedom that God's offered you. Let me start by saying this. Being loved is not the same. Hold on. Let's back up. There we go. Being loved is not the same as feeling loved. How many of you resonate with that? You come in this room and you say, yeah, I know my wife loves me. I'm not sure I feel it, though. I know my husband loves me. I know my kids say they love me. I know they do, but I don't really feel it. I don't experience it. Take it to God. How many times have you felt like you've prayed and your prayers are going no higher than this ceiling? How many times have you wept and you've ached and you've cried and you're saying, yes, Adam, I know God loves me. I know it. I've read it. I've studied it. I, I, I got it down, but I certainly don't feel it. I don't experience it. Well, my I want to do and show you in these verses, well, how do you experience it? These verses tell us in a powerful way. They tell us how to do that. And here's where. It says in these passages, it says in these verses that no one has ever seen God. Now, the people in our society that claim to have seen God, <laughs> we look at them as a little sketchy, right? And, and generally, we have institutions built to send them away and medicate them put them in a jacket or, or padded room. None of us have ever seen God. But what does the passage really say, though? Have you seen God? I think you have. I had a professor in college that said it this way. Have you ever wanted a hug from God? Have you ever wanted to feel loved? Have you ever wanted God to hug you, to be there, to give you an answer, to walk with you, to hold your hand? Have you ever wanted that? Maybe, maybe you're not a touchy-feely. Maybe it's a high five or a fist bump, right? Forget the hugging thing. I love what he looked at us and said to his students, you know what? The person sitting beside you, if they're a believer in Jesus, give them a hug and you just got a hug from God. That's what this passage is really driving at. 
If you have received that, what, what verses 7 through 10, if you've received Jesus Christ, if you've embraced the gift that he's given you, God lives in you. And then this emphasis, no one has ever seen God, but if we live this thing out, we're, we're bringing the full expression of God to bear in life. And so the people around me that, as I'm looking out in this room, I know some of you have God living in you. I know you do. And what you're doing to others is, is really giving away what God has given to you. And so as people interact with you, they're engaging and encountering and walking with, in essence, God. Now let me talk about how this really works. I, I gave away to you this morning. Now normally in Mother's Day we give away flowers. This morning, you can go away and brag to all your friends. I didn't get a flower, I got a sponge. Right? <laughs> I wanted to give one of these away to everyone. You know what these things cost? I'm thinking a sponge, for heaven's sakes, it's a sponge. <laughs> so we, we uh, went with the craft version. So instead of going home with a spa treatment, you're going to go home and do craft, uh, arts and craft projects, okay? So hopefully all the women, all the girls that came in as females, came in this morning, got a little sponge. Now, you think about a sponge. This is a sea sponge, one of the simplest creatures God ever created, organically. I mean, it's just a, it's a simple structure. Now, think about a sea sponge. Here's the beauty of this thing. As I studied this this week, this just blew my mind. So a sea sponge, you know how this thing, so you've got a little one. Do you know how this thing got this big? You know how it grows? It absorbs and pushes out. Absorbs and pushes out. It's absorbing and pushing out. Absorb and push out. Absorb and, so it brings water in through all its, all its pores and then whoosh, pushes out. In and out. In and out. In and out. And as it does that, it grows. I love the beauty of that. I think God's saying to you, absorb in, push out. Absorb in, push out. Absorb in, push out. Absorb in, push out. So, as you think about this, let me, let me give you the statement. Let me say it this way. What comes out is what has been absorbed. So I stick this thing down in the water, and I pull it out. Why did water come out of it? So well, that's easy, Adam, because you put water in it. It absorbed water. If I put Kool-Aid in here, if I put soda in here, what, it, what, if I put a little Lysol, if I put a little bleach, what, what is in the water, it absorbs and it pushes out. What is inside of you is what you have absorbed. You say, well, Adam, how do I get God in there? How do I absorb him? Well, let me, let me share a personal experience where I learned for the very first time how this works. I, th I think this was the very first time this ever happened to me. I've shared this with you before. My deepest spiritual struggle is to embrace and to receive and know God's love. Ever since I've been a teenage boy, when I've really been engaged in thinking of this, I've struggled with shame and guilt and fear and trying to know, does God really love me? Went down to Charlotte, North Carolina to plant a church. Many of you know the story. Did not succeed did something down in Charlotte, North Carolina that I deeply regret. Made a big mistake. Something I never wanted to do. And it exposed a whole system of mistakes. The night that it happened, I went away and I was so afraid. I was so scared. I knew that I was done. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with this sense of fear and shame and guilt. I didn't know how to step towards those that I hurt. Uh, I didn't know how to step towards Tanya. I just was afraid. Within two days, a friend of mine sits down to have lunch. And this is when I learned the principle. This is when it hit me. Looking across the table, he looks at me in the eyes. 
He didn't soft pedal a thing. Matter of fact, he ratcheted it up and he said, Adam, that was messed up what you did. It was wrong. And then he looked at me. I'll never forget this. He said, Adam, look at me in the eyes. And I could see, I could see them glisten in the corners and it began to melt me. And he said, I love you. And he went on to speak words into my life that I just took and received. I drove away from that, that restaurant with such hope that I couldn't put words to because I was in such a mess. That weekend, that Friday night, he had me come to this. He, he led a men's, this is, led a men's um, kind of like it was a fire uh, side chat type thing. And we all gather in the woods down there in Charlotte, North Carolina, right in the outskirts of the city. And, and there's about 25 men gathered around. And, and he brings me up beside him and he says, and this is what blew me away. I never, he starts telling all 25 men, saying, I'm not sure who they are and what they're about. He's telling all 25 men, starts telling them what I did that week. I'm thinking, dude, told it all in living color. Exposed me right there in front of everyone in that group. And then he put his arm on me and said, now, Adam, I want you to receive love from these guys. Exactly what he said. And he said, Adam, as they talk to you, I want you to keep your head up, and I want you to make eye contact with the person who's speaking to you. Don't put your head down. Look at them in the eyes and take what they're giving you. And they went around that circle, and multiple of them spoke and shared things that were far, in my judgment, far worse than what I had done. And, just, and I started hearing these stories, and I just received from them. And it's on that night, I went home, and it's that journey that began for me to answer this experience with God's love that I was struggling with. Here's what I've learned. If you really want to feel loved, experience God's love, you've got to put yourself in a position to receive it from others. I believe with all my heart, that's one of the things John is going after in verse 12. Take it in. Let people serve you and, and receive it from them. This is why I'd say it this way, for friendship to survive, to really, I'd say even thrive, it has to happen in the margins and the leisure of life. You don't just receive, I had to take time out of my schedule, I had to go sit for three hours around a campfire and just receive. I find so, so you need to slow down. Emotional communication is rarely successful on the run. Stress, we know stress, stress kills us. It destroys us physically. It does a number in relationships as well. I, I want to pause here and to give one pragmatic thing to these little devices that we have. They kill relationships also. I'm going to just speak very pragmatically. I love, love, love these devices. I love what they've done to our lives. I am, love these things. I mean, they're, they're amazing. However, some caution is needed on what they're doing to our relationships. I wanted to share, I have so much science has been done on this, and it's still young science because these things aren't that old. When we really look at the science, what you see is, is I'll share you the results that they'll share. You can't duplicate the complexity of in-person communication. You can't. Most social scientists say that it's at least 80% of all communication is nonverbal. You're watching, you're watching the corner of a mouth. You're looking at eyes. You're, you're watching the, the tenseness of a body. You're, you're picking up tone of voice. You're picking up elevation and volume of voice. You're nine, 80 plus percent of communication is nonverbal. These devices wipe most of that out. 
When you vox with someone, oh, you can hear the tone, but you don't see anything else. When you text, when you FaceTime, when you all that stuff, FaceTime's a little better. You can at least pick some of that up. Whether you, um, but again, these devices wipe a lot of that nonverbal out. I'd also say they take out the sensory experiences. When I was sitting around that campfire, smelling the fire, looking at tears, feeling a hand on me, that when you involve the five senses in a relationship, (laughs) it makes that relationship far more powerful. And those devices kind of take that off the table. And the final thing I'd say with those devices, what a lot of us forget, a healthy person posting on social media is not sharing their backstage experiences. They're sharing the front stage out here. They're not telling you what's happening back there. And so a lot of times we're constantly looking at all this stuff and comparing our lives and thinking, I don't measure up. Well, you measure up. They're just not telling you the horrible stuff that's really going on in their life. And they shouldn't. I don't think that should be posted all over social media. But to really receive God's love, I believe it's important to just slow down, to stop, to get life into the leisure and the margins and receive. Now, here's the problem with this. I want to really give you the struggle that we have to receive. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Again, there's so much in there. I, I don't feel like I'm doing this passage just at all because there's so much that I'm skipping and bypassing and trying to just pull a few truths out, but please be uh, kind to me on that. Um, maybe we can preach this passage another time. Verse 18 and 19. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. One of the hallmark coffee mug poster verses of the Bible. You have likely heard that verse before. Books and books and books and books have been written on that. Blogs and posts have written on this verse. This this has been a commented on verse. Such love has no fear. Perfect love expels all fear. Now look, if you're driven by fear, look what it says. If we are afraid, so fear is what drives me, shame and guilt, if that's what's driving me, whether it's in my human relationships or whether it's my relationship with God, here's what it is. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. So if I live with fear and shame and guilt pressing in on me, what it says, I've not, what, experienced. So you may know it, but you may not have experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he first loved us. I want to unpack this a little bit with uh, using someone who does not write as a Christian. I don't know if she's a Christ follower or not, uh, but this quote that she's given uh, from her book, written on shame and guilt, is one of the most powerful quotes I've ever come across. I've used this many times in my own life, but here it is. Brene Brown says it this way, until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. Can I share a little secret with you? I promise you the people around you know this. You may not, but I promise you the people around you know this. You're weak. You're needy. You're dysfunctional. All of you, myself included. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is full-blown dysfunction, you may be in the lower end. Some go and make a career out of dysfunction. I understand that. It's, it's out, yeah, you and maybe the person beside you, someone that's made a career out of it. I don't know. Every single one of you in this room is weak, needy, dysfunctional, broken at some level, and odd sinful to the core at some level. 
All of us. And what I find happens is we don't like this. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. I feel this sense of judgment. I feel this sense of you look at shame and, 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 and then fear steps in. I'm thinking, I don't want to be punished. So we work really, really hard not to be needy, not to be weak, not to be broken. And we do a lot of good stuff out of this drive. A lot of good stuff. That's why I say it all the time. It's often not our sin that keeps me from experiencing God's love. It's often my goodness. Because often it's my goodness that's spinning trying to control this piece over here. And so often when we step towards one another, I love how Brene Brown says this, so often in our culture, when we step towards someone to help them, we see they're weak, they need help. Well, when we're doing that, that same attitude reverses back on us. What do I do when I need help? Well, I'm weak, I'm broken, I can't be that. Let's work really hard to avoid that. I've heard it said this way. (laughs) You are more sinful, I am more sinful than I ever, ever feared. We hate looking at this. What is the standard that you set to say, I finally am enough and I'm worthy? I've got it, I've attained. What is your standard? We work hard to hit it. But when it really comes down to it, what scares us to death is, oh my goodness, I finally hit it, let's say, and you still look in and say, I've still got a problem because we are more sinful than we've ever feared. Here's the flip side of the message of Jesus. When that friend sat with me in Charlotte, looked at me in the eyes and says, Adam, you're a mess. He also then did the same thing and flipped it around and said, we're more loved than we ever hoped. More sinful than you ever feared, but more loved than you ever hoped. That's why I love how Billy Graham says it this way, the cross The cross of Jesus Christ shows us the seriousness of our sin. You are sinful. Your good works aren't going to clean it up. Your good intentions aren't going to make it better. The cross of Jesus Christ points to the fact that there is a real problem. But it also shows the flip side, the immeasurable love of God. As I think about this, and I think about freedom... Freedom from fear and guilt and shame and just being free. Here's what I've learned about freedom. We'll bring this thing full circle. Freedom increases my responsibility. When you set someone free, when you live free, your responsibility goes up. And your rights go down. Happens every time. When you own your own home and you say, I'm now free, I don't have a landlord, you now have more responsibility. You also have less rights when you really think about it. When you had a landlord, you could tell they didn't take care of me. I'd take them to court. They they, they didn't fix my water heater. They need to fix my water heater. But when you're a homeowner and your water heater goes bad, it's on you. So anytime you have freedom, responsibility comes up and rights go down. Happens all the time. And we don't like that. That scares us. Because after all, if my responsibility has come up, what happens if I fail? Well, that's on me. I have no one to point to now. And we fear that, and we fear punishment. And then we shift into, well, you know what? It's easier being a slave with rights. Then I can complain, and I have excuses. But I'm least secure. And I'd come back around and say, yeah, but Jesus came to set you free. And your relationships 
whether a mother to a child, a father to a child, a friend to a friend, a coworker, your relationships will not be what they could be unless you live free, truly free, and you give that freedom away. I love stories of the course. Stories are one of my favorite things. My two favorite stories of all time. Les Mis, hands down, my top favorite story. Second one is another French story written about the same time Les Mis was written, actually. Beauty and the Beast, a French story written 100 and some years ago. Loved, love, love, love the new Beauty and the Beast movie. It just came out here. I can't wait till it comes out to watch it at home on my screen. I'm, I guarantee I'm going to, I love this movie. I think all great movies at some capacity capture what we talked about this morning. All great stories capture this. I wanted to play the clip for you this morning, but unfortunately, I hunted all over online. The specific clip I couldn't find anywhere. Every time I'd find a link that had it, it went and said, this has been shut down for blah, blah, for privacy and copyright infringements. So I thought, ugh. So anyway, I got to wait till the thing comes out to show you this clip. So let me tell you the story and then wrap up. I'm sure most of you know the story of Beauty and the Beast, but if not, let me kind of paint it for you so, you can, so this, the, what happens at the end really makes sense. So, so there's this prince who sees beauty nothing more than skin deep. And because of that, uh, he, he, there's a spell cast over him. He's turned into this horrible beast that is anything but beautiful. And to break the spell, he's got to have true love's kiss. So he's got to get someone to fall in love with him. Now, who's going to fall in love with this hideous beast? Now, he's angry, and he's caged up, and he's raging, and he's, he hates himself. He hates what, he, hate, he just hates life. Well, as the story spins out, you, you know that there's, a, there's someone in town who comes walking out, who ends up as his prisoner, who has a daughter, who she comes to find her father, and then she exchanges herself for her father to set her father free. And she says to the beast, I am now your prisoner. Well, everyone in the castle that lives there has also been transformed. So you've got a clock who used to be a, a you know, and you've got all this. So you've got all these things coming to life saying, this is it. This is the one who's going to finally break this curse and we're all going to become human again. And so they all start working hard to set, the, to make love happen. Well, the beast throughout the story, what I love about the story, I love this. What the beast begins to do that he never had done before is allow people in to his inner world. She begins to learn of the, his past and his childhood and the trauma that he experienced. She, she begins to break through this hard shell. And so I love this. So the beast is absorbing her love. He's taking it in. It comes to the famous scene. This is the scene, if you've never seen it, you've probably seen a poster of this scene or a picture of this scene. Or It comes to the famous ballroom scene, just the two of them dancing. Everything comes to culmination, and everyone in the castle is like, this is it. He's, she's going to kiss him, and we're all going to be free. It gets to the end of the night, and the beast has absorbed so much of his love where his eyes are finally open, and he looks back at her, and he can now give something away because he has it to give. And he looks at her and says, you're miserable, aren't you? To which she replies, well, I'm your prisoner. I'm not really free. I want to see my dad. He has a magic mirror. She sees her dad in distress. The beast puts down the mirror, looks at a rose. It's about ready to lose its last petal. When that last petal falls off, he stays a beast forever. And he looks at her and says, go, you're no longer my prisoner. Freedom. Not control, not coercion. Freedom. And she leaves. And she's gone. And I watch that and I say that is what Jesus has come for. 
to absorb love, absorb it, and then wring myself out. And he was able to give himself to her in a way that set her free. Now, Belle, on the other side, I think she also paints a cool picture of the message of Jesus because she, on the flip side, if you think about her, she ultimately comes back to him. Because remember last week, what it is that you want, give it away. It'll often come back. She comes back to him because she's been set free. And she realizes all this time, I really care for this beast. And she comes back in just the nick of time, as, as a great story does, right? It always ends with that happy ending, and they kiss, and voila, boom, the beast is gone, everyone comes back. And the cool thing is, imagine this with me, imagine this. This is the cool thing of this. The entire castle comes back to life. So it's not just about their story, it's about the community around them that comes to life because of that love that was given and received. So as I go to prayer, some of you in this room this morning are the beast. Some of you are. You're just, you don't allow people in. You have a hard outer shell. You maintain that hard outer shell. You don't let people in. You don't let them serve you. you you're, it's, they're all out here. And I challenge you this morning, if that's you, let the people in your life in. Let them serve you. Let them give to you. Let them get to know you. Let down that shell just a little and keep, it's not all going to happen overnight, but let it down and receive don't just sit around saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? You know what he's saying to you? I'm right here. I'm in the people all around you. Receive me. Take me in. Absorb me. So some of you are the beast this morning. You need to let people in. And, and I'll also say this. Some of you are the beast in that you need to give the people in your life freedom. Just stop by reflecting on all that God has given you and the freedom that he's offered you. And you need to give that to the people around you. Relationships do not work when you're not extending freedom to those in your life. I'd say some of you in this room are Belle. <laughs> when she realized that, that this beast had set her free, it stirred in her the desire to come back. Do you realize the creator of heaven and earth has set you free in the person of Jesus Christ? the creator of heaven and earth has come to you and said, you know what? I wired you to be autonomous. I wired you to be free. I wired you to rule and reign and you are so wrapped up with stuff that controls you. I have come to set you free. I love when we like Bell receive that and really take it in. It in turn compels us to return it. So I'd say some of you are on that side. You just really need to grapple and wrestle with you have been set free. Have you received it? Have you come to a point where you say, you know what? My good works aren't cutting it. I am truly a sinner, darker than I ever feared, but more loved than I ever hoped. Yes, Jesus, I acknowledge you as God. I receive you. If you've not done that this morning, it would be a great morning, this Mother's Day, to do that. And imagine with me, when we do that and do that well, our families are transformed, same as it was in the story. Our workplaces are transformed. The people around us find life. And it's such a beautiful thing. So in this Mother's Day, my challenge to you, and as we end this whole series on friending, slow down. Slow down and absorb. Just absorb the love the people want to give you especially the Christians in your life. Allow them to love when you slow down and absorb the love of God. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I just want to offer a simple prayer in this Mother's Day. 
a day when full of emotion. God, my simple prayer is that every one of us in this room is free. Free, that we'd really know freedom, that we'd not live wrapped up by fear, but we'd be wrapped up by love and freedom. Compelled, driven by it. God, how we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for coming to this earth to pay a price that we could not pay to set us free. God, anyone in this room that has never experienced that freedom, God, I pray that they would do that this morning. They would simply just stop and say, okay, I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus. You're fully God. I know it. You've paid a price. I receive you. I put my faith, I put my trust in you. God, for those of this room that have done that, God, I pray that we would let people in. We would absorb your love from the people that you've placed in our lives. God, thank you that this is a church that understands the importance of relationships, that understands the importance of letting people in and walking with people through hard times and giving and receiving. Help us to do that even better so that we can all experience your love and that this place, this little corner of earth can be a full expression of your love and we can see life just, just spread out as we squeeze our sponges and push out all that we've received. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.